Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and I'm glad that you've made time on this Tuesday evening to join us. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. Before we get to the topic this evening, or, or get back to our topic of tolerance, Pastor, we have several questions that have come in this week for you. And I want to start with a message that came in during the program last week that I did not get to. And this comes from a 10-year-old boy in the village of Bendels here in Antigua. And his message is, Good night, Pastor. I am a 10-year-old boy, and I want to follow Jesus Christ. So what can I do? Am I too young to receive Jesus Christ? If so, tell me at what age it is good to receive God. Thank you, and I will listen to you on the radio more often. What a great question. Yeah, yeah, I so much appreciate the young man asking this fundamental question. It's so important today. Uh, let me begin by saying that the fact that you're 10 years old, uh, clearly you are within the realm where you are capable of putting your faith and trust in Christ. Um, my thoughts on this matter in, in regards to yourself is that I think when a person reaches the age where they are become conscious of sin, and where they're able to understand the Word of God. As they hear the Word of God, there's conviction in that person's life in respect to some particular sin that needs to be forgiven and, and pardoned. Uh, in other words, I'm saying to you that the Word of God has to be involved in your conversion, and there have to be a sense of conviction. The Holy Spirit's job, when the Word of God is preached or proclaimed or taught, is to uh, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And if you're a young man and you have this strong inner desire uh, to follow Christ, and it is very clear in your life that God has been working through the Word to bring a sense of need in your life in respect to forgiveness and pardon, um, once you have that sense of guilt and your need of forgiveness, um, my next thing would you, if you really desire to put your uh, to have Christ as Savior, do you have the faith to to believe and trust God at His Word? Uh, I think that is the key uh, there in terms of having faith. You're not saved by just simply bowing your head and saying a little prayer. Your, your, in other words, your prayer doesn't save you is what you put your faith and trust in. But you must believe that Christ died for your sins. Uh, you must believe that if you exercise faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, that he is willing to pardon and forgive you. And you must be willing to turn to God away from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I've known people as young as five, six, seven, who have made decisions and have continued 
uh, from that particular day even until currently. So uh, don't let age be a factor here. It has to do with your understanding of biblical truth. It has to do with the conviction in your life that you need forgiveness and pardon. And it also has to do with God pulling you in a direction where you recognize that you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're willing to do that, uh, you're all ready to, uh, to have Christ as Savior. If you have a mom or dad that's a believer, um, my recommendation would be to sit down with mom and dad and uh, share with them your concerns. And I would believe that your parents, if they're Christians, should be able to point you to the Lord and get you to uh, go to the, the sinner's prayer. If you don't have Christian parents and you have uh, you go to church and you have a pastor or maybe you have a, a, a good friend that is much older than you are, uh, it would also be helpful to turn to them and seek counsel in, in this matter. Uh, I think the radio station here as well would be more than willing to help you. I'm sure that if you were to call and speak to one of the persons here sometime during the day uh, or whatever, I'm sure that they will guide you and lead you towards uh, putting your faith and trust in Christ. But I do sincerely hope that this is a genuine uh, concern, and uh, I hope sincerely that God has been working in your life and that you're coming to see the need of Christ and that you will go a step further and actually not just talk about it and write about it, but actually put your faith and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. Remember, Samuel was a young lad when the Lord called him. Josiah was also a young lad. I remember John the Baptist as well, who started from the very beginning, even in his birth. So it's, it's not too, um, you're not too young. Um, I would encourage you uh, sincerely to, to go that step further and embrace Christ as your Savior. Thank you very much for sending in that question from Bendel's Antigua. Pastor, another question that came in right at the end of last week's program, and we didn't even have time to begin to discuss it, but can you please explain Ezekiel chapter 3 in relation to prophecy? And this comes from Matthew's Road here in Antigua. Well, uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, it's a fairly long chapter, and it's very difficult for us to read it on the air and uh, consume so much time. Um, I would just like to break down the chapter and, and just summarize what's in the chapter and then uh, talk about how it relates to the prophecy that Ezekiel have in, the, in his prophetic writings. In Ezekiel chapter 3, in verses 1 to 3, you have uh, Ezekiel commanded by God to eat the scrolls. Uh, and this has to do with uh, Ezekiel appropriating the Word of God because he's going to be commissioned to carry a prophetic word to Israel. But before he can carry that prophetic word, he must himself appropriate God's word. Uh, when he eats the scroll, um, he discovers that it is sweet to his mouth, but is bitter in his soul. And that's because biblical truth is always exciting for a person when God reveals truth. But when the contents of that truth is so severe, and God is bringing his judgment upon uh, Ezekiel's people, it is then it dawned on him the severity of the prophecies he was supposed to make. And that's what made it unpleasant to him. It, the Word of God is true, but truth sometimes is, can be very unpleasant. So he's commanded to appropriate the Word, and that is symbolically demonstrated in the fact that he is told to eat the scroll and to digest the scroll. In verses 4 to 11, he's commissioned. He's commissioned to go to Israel to speak to God's people. And in verses, those verses, uh, God draws a contrast and he tells Ezekiel, I'm not sending you to, to many, many people of different languages, but I'm sending you to your own people who speak your own language. 
and therefore they should understand the word. But even though they should understand the word, they're not going to res- respond to you favorably. And then he tells them the character of the people that he is going to be directing. He describes them as hard, one who hardened, stubborn, obstinate. And he, he tells them very, very clearly that their perverse self-will would cause them uh, not to accept his message, but to revolt against the message that he's bringing. And then in, in the, the, from verse number 7 and onward, the Lord tells Ezekiel to be courageous. He must not be afraid of their faces. He must not be afraid of their words. He must not be dismayed or daunted by the obstinacy of these uh, uh, people in Israel. And uh, he told them that he is going to be with them and he will make him strong to resist uh, their objections. So he's commanded uh, to eat the scroll in verses 1 to 3. He's commissioned from verse number 4 to 11. And then in verses 12 to 15, he's carried away by the Spirit to a place called Tel Abib in Shabar. That's a river in Mesopotamia that flowed into the Euphrates and has to do with the Babylonian area. Uh, it is there uh, the Israelites were located, and so he is taken there that he might minister the word and prophesy to them. For seven days, Ezekiel, when he got there, sat and empathized with them, didn't say a word, uh, uh, and he is there waiting. And then after uh, seven days, he's called in verses 16 to 21 to be a watchman. His responsibility is to warn the people. Uh, it's not just enough that he would sympathize with them. Uh, he has to warn them of the judgment to come and the danger that they're going to face. And he's told that if he warns, uh, he is no longer held responsible for the destiny of those who respond. But if he fails to warn and those people die when the judgment comes, God is going to hold him responsible. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. And so that his role as a watchman, and then uh, in verses 22 to 27, um, we have God's control of the whole situation. Uh, he directs him to go into the plains in verses 22 to 23. Uh, he displays his glory in verses 23 and following. And then he equips him uh, for the ministry and he discloses to him uh, how he's going to perform his task. Uh, the Lord told him that he would restrain, be restrained by the people. They'll bind him with cords and keep him in his house. The Lord also told him that he would uh, be restrained by God. God would make him mute. But then the Lord told him he would release him for ministry and God would open his mouth and Ezekiel would deliver the message directly to the Lord and he's going to have a mixed response. Some are going to hear and some are going to refuse. Now, this entire chapter, therefore, has to do with Ezekiel's call and commission and his responsibility um, as a watchman. It is part of the prophetic writings. As a matter of fact, chapter 3 is a continuation of chapter 1 where he has a vision of the Lord demonstrating his glory. So it is God calling Ezekiel to function as a prophet in a role as a watchman to warn of the coming invasion of the Babylonians and how uh, Judah is going to be destroyed because of the obstinate unbelief and because of the hardness of heart and the stubbornness. That's the gist and the essence of uh, Ezekiel chapter 3. 
The next question that came in came from a caller who called the station during the week. This caller comes from St. Martin, and the question, Pastor, is, a leader, a pastor in the church, has been married three times. Is it right? What does the Bible say about a situation like this? First of all, I was shocked when I got the question. I, I don't, I cannot countenance uh, the situation that this young man is referring to. Um, I, I find it difficult to believe that a church would call a person who has been divorced three times to be its pastor. So I'm shocked in the first case. Look, um, the Bible is very, very clear that God has very high moral qualifications for pastors. If you were to read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, you'll find that there are a list of qualifications there for pastors. And what, sh- what might shock some people, there are no academic qualifications that are mentioned there. Uh, there are no intellectual qualifications that are mentioned. Most of them are moral and spiritual and familial. And, and that gives you where the emphasis lies, because the important thing for a pastor is that he be a good example. He's a model. And it's very, very difficult for a pastor who has gone through three divorces to be held up as a model uh, and an example to be followed. Uh, we know in Malachi uh, chapter 2, verse 16, that God says he hates divorce. Divorce is never in God's will. It's never God's plan, never God's intention. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus made it very clear that marriage was designed to be permanent, and God sanctions the permanency of marriage. In, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it, it tells us that the pastor must be beyond reproach. And it tells us if a man can't run his family and control his family, how can he control the church of God? So it becomes very difficult for him to model uh, for his people if he goes through that kind of a, um, a divorce. And then in Titus, uh, we also talk about the importance of family life in relation to a pastor. Uh, a pastor who has been divorced three times says several things to me. Number one, he has The very question is married three times, so I guess divorced twice, or former... Uh, he married three times. He's married, married three times. It tells me that clearly there's a poor judgment on his part. Um, it seems very difficult for me to understand a man can make the same mistake three times. So he's made three wrong choices. Um, that is a concern for me. And then um, it seems as though also he might have an incompatible personality. Hmm. I mean, why can't he, why doesn't a wife doesn't want to stick with this guy? Something wrong with him that his personality is such that um, she finds living with him so horrendous that uh, you know, it has to end, it has to be terminated. And then it might also indicate a moral weakness. Hmm. Uh, does he have a taste for chicken and for beef and for pork, or does he have a one-woman type of mind? Those are the kind of questions that, that I had to be concerned about. But that would affect whether he's eligible to be a pastor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't feel, personally, I don't endorse uh, divorced people in the pulpit. When I say don't endorse, I, I think that they... There could be exceptions that I probably could tolerate. Um, I know of one case right now that I can think of where uh, the pastor is not at fault. He's done everything to salvage the marriage, uh, but the wife has insisted that she doesn't want to continue the relationship. And so she filed for divorce and uh, divorced him. But the church uh, knew the situation. They were aware of all that was going on, and they still called him to the pulpit, even though he indicated he, he really didn't feel that he should fully fill the pulpit. But they still called him, 
and he's a pastor today. Um, I think that's an exception to the rule, to be very honest with you. Uh, but I don't think it's the ideal thing for church. I don't think it sets the right model uh, for the family. And it's very difficult for a person who's divorced to be able to counsel people when they're going through marital problems and to have any credibility. Mm. So I think for a pastor, um, I think it's very, very difficult. And it would have to be. But a person who has been married three times, assuming that he's gone through divorces, now, if there's a person who has been married three times because his wife has died three times, there's no problem. Right. But if there's a person who's been divorced three times and remarried, um, that person, in my judgment, doesn't belong in the pulpit. And I, in the, I, look, I just think that we ought to have the highest standard for men in the pulpit. And I think when we begin to lower the standard in the pulpit, it will affect the lifestyle of the congregation, and it's going to create problems for the church in the long term. But I would not in any way... Um, endorse a person who's gone through a process of divorce three times and remarried three times to be in the pulpit. I, I can't understand why a church would call a person like that. It's either they're not reading the Bible, they don't understand God's will, and they don't uh, fully comprehend or follow the biblical teaching of what Christ said, that marriage was intended to be permanent. <coughs> You're listening to That's Truth. It is a live call-in program. You can either call and ask your question live on the air, or you can WhatsApp and text it. If you'd like to go live on the air, you can call 1-268-462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. But next, let me just mention something. I just remembered there's a second case that I'm aware of, and this is in the Caribbean. This is a person who was a pastor, and um, he was pastoring a church. I don't want to go into details because people won't be able to identify who this person is. But he brought his wife from another country um, to be with him as part of the ministry. And then she got her green card. And she used her green card to abandon the marriage and migrated to the States and just left him. Hmm. Uh, the church was aware of that. Um, the church felt that he was the innocent party. There was no justification. There's no reason for it. I guess it's because she, coming from a, a deprived country, as it were, felt that getting to America was the greatest ass thing that she could do. But at what price? Um, so, I mean, in a case like that, the church retained him as a pastor. And um, you know, those are, those are very, very, those are exceptional situations. Uh, personally, I think that d- divorce is only biblical on two grounds. One has to do with infidelity, where a person commits adultery. But I also believe that Corinthians chapter 7 teaches that if a person is abandoned, uh, that terminates the relationship. And by the way, those who have been abandoned, uh, if your conscience bothers you, you just have to wait a time because those people who are abandoned normally end up in a, a, a relationship with somebody else, so that's now becomes adultery. So for for conscience sake, uh, don't act very quickly, but at least try to get the situation where you're firmly on biblical grounds. Look, we're living in a sinful, distorted world, and Christianity is designed to be the salt and light of society. And we've got to maintain a very high standard if we're going to change the whole moral uh, atmosphere of, of, of uh, our, our society. We don't help our society by lowering the standard. 
And I think when it comes to churches, look for the highest moral standards when you're calling pastors. Uh, it's going to have long-term positive effects. And if you choose the wrong person, it's going to have real profound uh, difficulties for the church and for the ministry in the future. Okay, you just said that we should hold a high standard in our in order to be the salt and light of the world. But the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is not of works. So by holding a high standard, am I not working to earn my salvation? How do those two coexist? There's no, there's no contradiction there. And the salvation has to do with eternal life. But don't forget, there's the biblical teaching of rewards. Right? It's a biblical teaching that, um, that God is going to acknowledge what we've done, and there are going to be rewards in the future. So uh, that is where it comes in. So you must not see the doctrine of salvation, which has nothing to do with the works. Our works has to do with the fact that what we do for the Lord and how we live, we will have rewards in the future. And rewards, I don't have to tell you, is a normal part of everyday life. Every person is looking for some kind of reward. Uh, I mean, you, you look at the Olympics. You look at uh, running a race. Uh, you, you get a Caribbean person who is number two in the world. The whole Caribbean is excited about that, right? In Christianity, there's an incentive for living a godly life, and not it, that incentive is not just a matter of you're going to eternity because you live a godly life. You're going to eternity because you put your faith and trust in Christ. But there are rewards in the future, and that's why uh, we work towards pleasing God because um, we want rewards. We were discussing tolerance last week, and okay. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And at the very end of the program. I asked you a question that we just didn't have time to cover it, so we'll pick up with that, and then we'll get back into the topic of tolerance. Pastor, is it ever okay to tolerate sin if I have someone living in my household who is living in sin? Well, I, I'm glad that you, the person specified the, that particular aspect, the household living in sin. I think I'll, I'll just mention... Um, my thoughts on that. First of all, are we dealing with a minor? Are we dealing with a person who is of age and a mature person who, what we would say, has reached the age of manhood? I think you've got to differentiate between those two things. Um, you have a legal obligation to uh, protect your minor and to take care of your minor. And unless the situation is so grave that it is completely destroying your family and affecting your home. Uh, there's nothing wrong if you can't control a child to have him incarcerated at the boys' school or a uh, boys' home or whatever if it, you can't handle it. When it comes to a young man now who is of age um, and you are the mom or the dad, if, my, if I had a son, not, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about a Christian home here. Okay, I'm assuming. The, the Christian home and the family um, is the husband and the wife that sets the standards of that house. So you have to, you've got standards that you set for your house. I can't tell you what standards to set, but there should be biblical standards. But uh, let's suppose you have a standard in your house that, um, you know, there's no immorality in my home. I will not tolerate immorality. But you have a young man who's bringing home his girlfriend. And they're going into the bedroom and they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, if I were you as a Christian person, I would confront that. And I would give that child an alternative. 
you either conform to our standards or you find someplace else to live. Uh, you cannot allow a child to destroy the standards of your home and, 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 uh, and, and bring, uh, um, make your home disreputable and uh, destroy the testament of your home. Wouldn't that be giving them, encouraging them to go out and to practice fornication? And well, they, look, whether you encourage them to go out and do it or you allow them in the home, it's the same thing. But the thing is, uh, sometimes you're trying to preserve the other children. If you have one senior person in the home setting a bad example for the others, you know, children think this way, well, if, that, if he get away with it, I'll get away with it too. So you've got to decide where, where the standard is. But... A child is asked to honor their parents, to obey their parents, and in the Old Testament, uh, we would not recommend this, of course. If you had a, a child that was completely hardened and was um, totally disobedient, disrespectful, and uh, would not listen to the parents, God saw that as a capital offense. And God told the parents, bring that child out before the elders and tell them exactly what is happening. And the elders were supposed to stone them. We don't recommend stoning, but that gives you the idea of how God views this whole matter. Disobedience to parents and disrespectful in the home and dishonoring appearance is not a trivial matter that is to be taken lightly. In God's sight, it is worthy of capital punishment. So that is how severe the matter is. And for a Christian, I think you have to decide... Uh, do you want to maintain a testimony for you? For you want to have a Christian home where there's a testimony in the community of your Christian home, or are you going to tolerate your child disrupting and destroying everything that you've tried to build up, etc.? I think for me, um, I don't have any problems with it at all. If I had a son, even now at my age, any of my sons were uh, in my home knowingly committing a uh, fornication and adultery. They would not be in my home. They'd be out of my home, right? Um, because, number one, I'm a pastor, but even before I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. And I think my, my home should reflect my Christianity. So I would say that there may be some drastic magic. You know, in speaking of Abraham, when the Lord called Abraham, one of the reasons why the Lord selected him, he said, I know Abraham. He will order his children and teach them my ways. Joshua said, as for me and my house, I can't tell you what to do. We will serve the Lord. That's a family taking a position, a pastor, a, a father taking a position that his home be a Christian home and he will protect that Christian home. And whatever drastic measures may be needed, um, I think the parent has to take the appropriate measures and I cannot fault any parent who lays down the rules and the regulations, the standards, and expect their child to come up to those biblical standards. Give the child a choice. Uh, say to them, listen, you've got a choice. You either can stay here and live within the rules. If you can't live by the rules, find some place else to go. I have no problems at all with, with that kind of uh, uh, matter of dealing with it. I, I think if parents were more severe in dealing with these matters, I think we have less of the moral confusion that we have in our times. But I think what has happened, we've become too soft. And we've made Christianity uh, something that is so tolerant that even sin is tolerated. Yeah, so loving. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, this is part of the whole distortion of presenting God almost exclusively as a loving God, that He loves everybody, you can do anything, He loves you on unconditionally, etc., etc. Uh, by overemphasizing that and not focusing on the holiness of God, 
we have done a great disservice to this generation and uh, perhaps even the previous generation. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? We would love for you to ask it. You can call one 268-782-1454. Excuse me. To be put live on the air, you can call one 462 7420 If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 7821454. The name of the program is That's Truth, and the time across Eastern Caribbean is one minute till 8 p.m. on a Tuesday evening. Pastor Murphy, last week we were discussing tolerance, and I think we should just rehash real quickly uh, what we covered last week. We covered the, the definition of tolerance. Uh, can you remind us? Yeah. What we were trying to um, point out to the public is that uh, the concept of tolerance has changed and it's now becoming one of the premier virtues but with a different interpretation. Tolerance in the past meant that I would be willing to accept the right for people to differ with me uh, and yet not to be hostile in any way or to try to use the government to coerce them to call it fall in line with me. So I was willing to tolerate. I was willing to put up with people who differed with me in my practice and beliefs. Uh, the new tolerance is, is, is a different concept altogether. The new tolerance is that um, you now must not disagree with what people's opinions are or what people's practices are. If you disagree with it, you seem as though you're discriminatory. And uh, it is creating massive problems so that if I disagree with a homosexual, I disagree with a lesbian, I disagree with the, the, the transvestite, or I disagree with same-sex marriage, I am now seen as a hate monger. And I am now seen as though I'm discriminating of people's alternative sexual orientations. So I am now labeled uh, as a bigot. I am now labeled as intolerant. Uh, all the kinds of epithets that you can use to black, uh, to blacken me, basically, and my character are now used against me. And then it's coming to the point now where I'm now using the law and, uh, uh, and, and using the law courts to force me to accept your lifestyle. So I think that's what we're trying to defend, that the, the, the old tolerance of people disagreeing with each other and respecting the fact that we have a right to disagree. We don't have to, we don't have to hold each other's views. That is changing where the concept, in other words, the new tolerance is become intolerant if you don't accept what the, the, what the, uh, the moral police are saying is a, is, should be the morality of a country. That's what's been happening with the new tolerance. Is it does it really matter if we discuss tolerance? Why is it important? That we yeah, we, we we mentioned that you know because it's one of the great buzzwords and the pet words that are being used, and um, we, you know it, it's now, as I said, the even the courts have gotten involved, governments have gotten involved. Uh, I think it's important for us to understand the shift uh, and understand that the word is now being used in in a much harsher, intolerant way than it previously was used. And if we are going to engage in the marketplace of ideas and we are going to be able to present uh, the Christian position on these matters, it's important for us to understand the 
on the current the ethos of the, uh, the the age in which we're living and be able to respond to it otherwise we might find ourselves before the law courts and not be able to defend ourselves and we may not really understand what is really happening because our head is so buried in the sand uh, until when we wake up it is far too late for us as Christians now many people today would say but Jesus was tolerant he went and ate at the house of Zacchaeus he interacted with sinners so why wasn't Jesus tolerant of sin so shouldn't I be tolerant of sin also no when you that's a distorted picture of Christ because when you look at Christ dealing with people he was tolerant of people who were sinful he was tolerant of people who needed to know the truth uh, as you know, he was labeled a wine-bibber and a, a, a lover of publicans and sinners. But you never find Christ tolerating sin. Um, you find that when he dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery, I think I alluded to that last time, you find that um, after he wrote on the sand and he said, which you condemn her, and everybody was so embarrassed because if you without sin, every man walked away. And then he turned to her and said, Women, no, 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 no. but he said to her, Go thou and sin no more, lest a worse thing could happen, see. So clearly he was not tolerant towards sin. As a fact, can I put it this way, he was so intolerant to sin that it was sin that brought him down from his celestial palace in heaven to come down to earth to die for sin. He was so intolerant, he had to deal with it. Wow. And he dealt with it uh, in a way that he had to pay the ultimate price of his own death to solve the sin problem. So the suggestion that he is tolerant of sin is to miss the whole reason why he came on his mission. And of course, uh, he was also intolerant to people who were indifferent uh, to him and his cause. He said to them, if you're not for me or what? You're against yes. me. See, yeah. So you're either for me or you're against me. He laid down the gauntlet and let people know you've got to take sides. That is intolerance. Uh, and then, of course, he was intolerant towards people who had a divided heart. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't go after the material pursuits and make that the central purpose and the driving force of your life and at the same time serve God. You've got to, you only have enough energy to focus it centrally on one particular matter. And, of course, um, he made it very, very clear uh, that there are only two alternatives, is two, two kingdoms, two masters, uh, two ways. One is broad, one is easy, one is popular, one is narrow, one is difficult, one is unpopular, and you've got to make a choice. So to, to say that he was tolerant uh, and not define that toleration um, could have a misleading interpretation of who Christ really was. Pastor, we have two WhatsApp comments that have come in from Antigua. The first uh, one says, the first three chapters of Galatians is a great progressive revelation and filled with superior text, clarifying why living under the law is pushing Christ to the side since the law was given to lead us to him after he came. An idea, th this is a good idea to help listeners. I think that's a, a good thought. Yeah, I think the person is very aggressive, uh, has definitely literary skills. And he's able to um, very poignantly uh, put Galatians chapter three, 1 and 3 uh, in a very forceful way. And I think it is well well written, well said. I endorse the sentiments. And, um, and I think this person as well is a person who uh, sees the difference between law and Christ 
and that uh, one pointed to the other. The law pointed to Christ, and Christ uh, must not be on par with the law. Um, Christ is the inner law to righteousness, the Bible says. And then a WhatsApp comment from Piccadilly. I believe that we should study the story of the prodigal son from experience. Separating siblings causes an adverse effect on the entire family. This is why we should be praying and fasting for our children. Remember what Job did for his sons and daughters. He never gave them an ultimatum. Well, that is an interpretation that is also skewed, right? If you take the prodigal son, for example, um, what's the point there? Um, I'm not too sure if the person is saying that the father should have tolerated the son or not tolerated the son. The point that we are trying to establish here is that if you're running a Christian home and you want to have a Christian testimony, you as a parent, as a leader, you have your rights to establish the standards of your home. You can't let your child be the one that dictates and controls what happened in your home. You've lost your moral authority and your leadership role. So if you want to be a milksop and you want to be a person who, who's a jellyfish character, you may, you may pursue that. The other factor is that I've seen uh, bad children ruin homes and ruin the lives of the other children in the home. So there are two sides to it. But as far as I'm concerned, my primary responsibility is that I am the head of my home. I'm responsible for what comes into my home, what goes out of my home. I lay down the rules and the regulations. My children are given choices as to what choices they would make. If they want to be part of the household, they want to share in the benefits and the blessings of the household, so be it. I have no problem. But they're not going to be allowed to come into my home, disrupt my home, destroy the morality of my home, uh, um, undermine the spirituality of my home, uh, that's not going to happen. If you want that to happen in your home, so be it. But it will not happen in my home. And I think uh, if Christians... The problem, I think, is that if we were more severe in dealing with the current generation of people we have today, the children, we have a different age altogether. But we've all become so tolerant that anything goes, and we're all done in the name of love. But there must be tough love as well. So I, I don't know who the person is. But I differ with you on that matter, and it's maybe a subjective decision that you would have to make. But as far as I'm concerned, serving God and living for God and having a testament of God is more important than any other thing on planet Earth, including if I have to lose my children. Uh, we must put God first, not that I don't care about my kids, but they've got to understand who's boss, who's in control, and I have to maintain standards within my home. I don't think I help my child by allowing him, tolerating him to live in sin in my house, and I do nothing about it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I lead him down the wayward path. He doesn't respect my judgment. He doesn't respect my authority. Uh, he just thinks that um, I, I, I'm a Christian in name only, but I, there's no bite to my Christianity. And I think you need to let people understand their consequences to decisions, and even though I love my kids, there are severe consequences if they go against what the family and my, uh, what I and my wife has established as far as our home is concerned. For example, nobody could smoke pot in my home. Nobody. I don't care who it is, right, could smoke pot in my Nobody can bring somebody in my house and go into bed and sleep with the, with the person. That can't happen, never would happen. 
nobody in my home could be swearing and cussing and calling uh, and my wife or myself and remain in my home. Uh, we've got to maintain that we are the authority. God respects the fact that the parent is the authority and the child must learn to submit to the parent and honor the parent. Look, God's attitude to this whole thing, as I just pointed out, you know, his attitude hasn't changed, by the way. His dealing with us have changed because of grace. But in God's sight, a rebellious child that refused to follow his parents and obey his parents ought to be die. He ought to face capital punishment. That's God's feeling of it because God establishes authority and there's a hierarchy of authority. So uh, I am not as sympathetic towards uh, the, uh, the person that is making those kind of comments. I just think that we have made a mess of Christianity. We've lowered our standard and we're feeling the consequences of it now. And to re- revert back to it now is created by problems of people who hold this kind of sentiments, who don't think we should have standards in our home, etc. We're willing to surrender those standards in the interest of peace, our so-called benign concern for our children. You mentioned that we need to be firm with the children nowadays. But don't you think, Pastor, that there's a whole generation that now has children of their own? that have become very lax and don't understand, aren't disciplined? Yeah, I'm talking about a Christian. I'm not talking about a Christian home. I, the unsafe home, uh, even though, by the way, if I was an unsafe father, um, I would still have rules in my home. Um, and I would still set those rules, and my children would still have to conform to those rules and those regulations. Uh, look, I don't think people understand that God has established authority. He's established uh, biblical authority in the church. He's established governmental authority in government. He's established familiar authority in the home. And as far as God is concerned, when those authorities break down, the home breaks down, society breaks down, government breaks down. God is a God of order. He maintains order. Pastor, we have a caller from Piccadilly, Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hi, good evening, brother. Good evening, sir. Um, it's just uh, to um, um, recap um, about the message that was sent earlier. Sure. Um, when I mentioned the story about the prodigal son, I wasn't saying that the, the father was tolerating him being disrespectful or wanting to have his own way. Okay. But what I was showing is that the father was so concerned that he suddenly left, um, left, and ended up, you know, having his having the time of his life, right? Uh-huh. But then the father was there at home worrying about his son. Yeah. So it's a case, so it's a matter where, um, um, well, the son came to the father um, himself and said, that, hey, look, I want my things then. Yeah. Give me my blessing so I can go be, be on my way and live my life how I want to live. Yeah. But he was really concerned about the life of his son uh-huh. um, and, and, if the, if, and the well-being of his son. Mm-hmm. Um, why had I also mentioned about Job? It's because um, Job, Job knew that his kids were having parties and all of that and all of that. Yeah. And Job also realized that they can be swearing because they're drinking and all of that. They can be swearing and cursing a lot. So what Job did, Job prepared himself to keep on offering sacrifices for the kids then. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that we should be tolerating okay. um, the behaviors mm-hmm. of, of, of kids or what the can be. The Bible says, chain up the child yeah. in the way he should go and when he's going to not depart from it. Yeah. Yeah. If we have a, uh, have, a, have a stern hand in, in, in training our kids, uh-huh. we let them know that, hey, this is my standard, right? This is my standard. My standard is coming from um, the Word of God, yes. as, as, it, as it is, right? Uh-huh. 
I'm not, I don't have a Christian standard. I have a standard following of, 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 of a standard that is, that is supposed to be Christ-like. Yes. Right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, we're going to have, we, we have, we have this huge burden on, on, on us. Mm -hmm. Because God has given us these children as gifts to take care of them. I've had experiences where um, my, my, my family, um, we've, we've, we were separated because certain things happened. Uh -huh. and it, 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 it actually tore down the whole entire family. Uh -huh. So that we are trying to pull ourselves back together by the grace and the mercy of God. Yeah. Could I, I say something? I, I appreciate yeah. you saying, clarifying what you're saying, to be honest. I must have jumped the gum a little bit. But uh -huh. I appreciate what you're saying. But let me just say this. If I were to send my child, uh, suppose my child... Um, wouldn't follow the rules and I used to tell him he had to leave mm -hmm. let me just tell you this my heart will be with him every single day honestly even though I would have to take stern action uh, I would still be calling him I would still be trying to do my best to help him so I agree with what you're saying there that uh, you know we should all even if you have to be so stern that and it might require some kind of discipline that way might even if the person said well dad i can't live under these conditions so i have right. to go i still yeah. believe that you should keep the connection look as long as your child knows that you love him yeah. that's the most important thing in a child's life even though you might be harsh in his reflective moments when he really think about these things as he matures uh -huh. he will be but he must feel that whatever dad does or mom does this is love this is they'll be no matter what happens and I, i'll tell you this if my child was a murderer, I would still love him. If yeah. my child was a rapist, I would still love him. If my child yeah. was a drug addict, I would still love him. I yeah. must, I can't understand how people can't love the kids. And I will always do everything in my power uh -huh. to help my kids. No matter what they do to me in life, right. it would always be their best interest I'm looking out for. And I guess that's the same problem that David had with Absalom. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, there's one more thing. Sure. I'm always hearing um, pastors, elders, uh, quoting a certain thing um, um, because it happened to um, to Eli. I'm, I'm always hearing that they're saying that you know I'm not going to be living Eli's life or whatever the case may be. Why Eli having his sons them doing whatever they they and, and not talking to them or speaking to them or correcting them. Uh -huh. right? I'm always hearing pastors and leaders constantly repeating that 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 that, that particular um um stuff. Uh -huh. Something it's putting a lot of pressure on the kids them itself. Uh -huh. And I don't know that if we realize that or understand that or even if we even see that. Because being a pastor's child that is I mean it is a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's, I it's, agree it's, with that. It's a lot of pressure. They expect the pastor's child to be angels. They forget that they're just human beings and natural individuals. I've, uh, I think I've pointed out to our church uh, more than once that, you know, my kid is just like your kid. It's, it's, and, and um, you know, that's why a lot of pastors' kids uh, rebel so much as well, uh, to, to against the, the the church and rebelled against the home because of they've got this expectation that they find it difficult to reach. And they're not willing to, in any way, to understand that, you know, they're natural children like anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So we've got to be very careful. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate your clarification. No problem. No God problem. bless you. No problem. God bless you, yeah. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. The name of the program is That's Truth. 
The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. This evening, we're just continuing our discussion on the topic of tolerance. And Pastor, does tolerance, does this topic affect the church? Has it infiltrated the church? Yeah, I think, I think that whatever happens in culture um, eventually seeps into the church. Uh, someone has said, it's, it's okay when the boat is on the ocean, but when the ocean starts getting into the boat, then it begins <laughs> to sink. I, I think that's what happens to the church. A lot of these things gradually creep into the church. Uh, and in my judgment, I think that the church has lost its courage. Uh, I think it's lost its passion for truth and for holiness. And it seemed to be too anxious to be accepting and to be considered relevant. And therefore, it has a tendency uh, to embrace the cultural concepts, and they begin to enter the church very, very slowly. And I think when it comes to the church, I think that's why the church has become very tolerant. In these. Take, for example, all the major denominations, um, with very few exceptions, have now, are now ordaining homosexuals, Women, women, uh, you you take that. I think that's the, you know, that's part of the, the feminist movement to create an egalitarian society where there's no distinction between male and female. Now it doesn't matter. The Bible speaks clearly on these matters. Uh, they say that there's a cultural context to those passages in Scripture, but it's not a cultural context. It's a historical context based on creation, and also based on the fall. Uh, but again, you can see that becoming, uh, and of course, there are churches now that are marrying couples that are same-sex marriage. Uh, again, they want to be relevant. They don't want to be considered to be obscurantist or to be Victorian or puritanical in their, in their morals. Uh, and I think that they generally want to be so accepted by society that this matter of toleration has now entered the church. This also caused churches to be very tolerant towards false doctrine. I mean, things that the Bible clearly talks about. I, I mean, for example, like one of the classic ones today is the idea of tongues. Now, even if you allow tongues as a current gift that is still relevant for our time, the Bible regulates uh, how it is to be used in the church, but it's not done that way. Uh, it says two or three at one time, and there must be an interpreter. If there are not two and three at one time an interpreter, it must be closed down. But which church you know, or I know, that allows speaking in tongues that have those biblical regulations, right? Uh, so we've, we have subtly allow a lot of those kind of, and then take them out of divorce. It used to be that divorce was seldom mentioned in the church. Now, the divorce rate in the church is just on par a divorce rate in the world is 50%. How in God's heaven was that allowed to enter the church? It's always a gradual process, but again, it's adopting to the new morals of society, and rather than setting the standards of morality, we've allowed the uh, world's philosophy to infiltrate the church. Pastor, we have a caller calling from St. Kitts. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Thank you very much. I'm calling from St. Kitts. Yes, sir. Um, directing to Pastor Murphy. Go right ahead, sir. Pastor Murphy, yes. for some time now, I am contemplating on this question as regards to capital punishment, the law, and grace. Uh -huh. 
It is a big question because we in the Western world who believe in Christianity and we are Christians. Yes. When they decided to outdo, outlaw capital punishment, because it is believed that Christ died and grace comes into play. Yes. So the law should be outlawed. I do not know. If I did not get it right, I just don't know. But I decided to put you on. Yeah. I decided to bring you into the picture. Yeah. Well, look. Question we, is. Question okay. is. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Go ahead. Why then Jesus told one of the thieves, "Today you shall be with me in paradise." Uh -huh. Why then, if the law, if if the law says that the thief should die, Jesus said to him, "Today thou shalt be with me in paradise." Yeah. I reckon it this way. That because of the law, you have to go, you have to pay for your sins in flesh and blood, but in spirit, you will have to. You can be with me in paradise today. Mm -hmm. That is the question. Why Jesus said that? That okay. is the question. For, can for, you? Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. You want me to? Can you expound on that? Can you expound yeah, on yeah, that? Yeah. By the way, we we did do a program on capital punishment before, so if you want to get that program, you probably could. Uh, the station will probably give you that. Yeah. Or uh, you can even. I don't know if you have access to the internet. You can uh, Google "That's Truth" podcast, and the name of the program was capital punishment. And if you give me just a date, or give me just a second, I will tell you what date we did that. I'll share it after Pastor Murphy shares his thoughts. Yeah. Um, um, let me answer the one about the, the thief on the cross. Um, the, the reason why he was pardoned and forgiven, um, can you imagine the amount of faith it took for you to be hanging on a cross with a felon like Christ where he's crucified what would seem in weakness. He's gone through all this brutality, but yet you can say these words, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom. Imagine the amount of faith that man must have had to believe that the one hanging on the cross was the Lord of the universe, and that one day he would set up his kingdom. That is faith unparalleled in the New Testament. And it was that kind of faith in Christ while crucified as Lord of the universe, and one who would rule in the coming kingdom. That kind of faith is what created the situation where this man was now pardoned and forgiven and in the kingdom of God. He was now recognizing this one in the cross as the Lord, as the Messiah, as the Savior, as a coming ruler. And it's that faith in Christ that the Lord was able to say to him, Today shall thou be with me in paradise. So it's a, as a matter of his faith, it's just like any, you take a, a murderer today, who you go into prison, you witness to him, and finally it dawns on him who this real Jesus is, that he's the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's the coming King, and that person is willing to turn away from the sin and put their faith and trust in Christ. That person today will be just as justified as that thief on the cross, because he's put his faith and trust in Christ as Savior. In terms of capital punishment, uh, the book of Romans speaks to this very clearly. Um, you remember in the book of Romans, Paul says that the, the government does not bear the sword in vain. The government has a right to exercise the 
the price of capital punishment on those offenders who commit capital offenses. Personally, I believe that a person who has committed premeditated murder, I'm not talking about accidental murder or homicide by some, some a- accidental act, I'm talking somebody who comes into your home deliberately to shoot you, to kill you, deliberately, knowingly, planning it. There's no doubt in my mind that such a person should be uh, executed. Uh, the Bible said the reason you execute a person is because that human being is made in the image of God, and to destroy the image of God is to forfeit uh, one's own life. Uh, you find that in Genesis chapter number 9. The other thing is, it's interesting that um, uh, Paul, in the book of Acts, uh, recognized the right of government to exercise justice, uh, where Paul said, we justly deserve this. Uh, so he, dis- he, he recognizes the governmental authority of God to exercise uh, judicial uh, action, even to the extent of capital punishment. We lost the caller. Uh, we had we did the topic on in October of last year, and I just tested it. If you go on Google and you type in "capital punishment," that's truth podcast, or type them in in a different order if you'd like. It'll come up in the first couple of items on Google there will take you to that program and that program was dedicated to what the Bible says about the death penalty and capital punishment. Thank you for that call. Uh, did you have anything yeah, else? Yeah, Nathan, to- I want to read a, a quote from R.G. Lee um, that gives us an idea of the, the times in which we're living. This is <laughs> Only R.G. Lee could, could say this. He said, we live in a world of invertebrate theology. Okay, <laughs> he said, "Jellyfish morality, seesaw religion, Indian rubber convictions, somersault philosophy that tells us what we already know in words which we do not understand." <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing way of expressing. Uh, he definitely has a way with words, but the fact is that um, that's the kind of world that we're currently living in. That um, nothing is no longer held to be truth. Nothing is held to be exclusive. Uh, Nothing is held to be of universal application. And any claim to exclusivity or universal application of any morality is now uh, discountenanced and is looked down upon as though it's intolerant and discriminatory to other views. That's where we are as far as the moral scale of society. And the church, sadly, has been bitten by that book. What should be the Christian's response to this new definition of tolerance? Well, the church, uh, in its responding to this whole matter, this new tolerance that we have, uh, just a few things I would like to suggest along that line. The first thing is that I don't think we should capitulate to the cultural spirit of our times. In other words, uh, we must not embrace this new definition or this new ideology of tolerance for the sake of being accepted or for the sake of uh, being relevant. I think that we we must hold to biblical principles. Uh, The other thing I would say is that we must somehow equip and and, um, respond to this this matter uh, so that other Christians would know how to respond to it. So the church has to somehow 
deal with this in such a way that it arms Christians with uh, answers when they're confronted with this this new doctrine of uh, in to, uh, being being tolerant. Uh, in spite of of that, I think we need to understand that the new tolerance that is there really is absurd. And when I say absurd, I mean really absurd. If all views are equally valid, as they're saying, it means then that Christianity is also valid. But if Christianity is valid, says that all views are not valid, how does that make any sense at all? It's totally absurd to, to, to hold that kind of a position. So it's a kind of a self-refuting proposition. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, we do not tolerate people with who we agree. So to be tolerant, it means that there must be some kind of disagreement. Does that make sense? The, the logic of that is, is so to, the idea that to be tolerant today means that you must agree with everybody, that doesn't make any sense at all because to be tolerant means that, that there are things that people don't agree with. Yeah, I got it. So that's why I'm saying it's so absurd to, to be pushing this thing about tolerance. Uh, so how could I, <laughs> why do I need tolerance if we all agree that everything is the same, there's no difference, all values are the same, there's nothing better than anything else, uh, there's nothing exclusive. There's no need for tolerance. I mean that we all have the same form of agreement. <laughs> so I think that the we have to expose the illogic of that, that kind of, of thinking. The other thing is, I think we must also follow the pattern of Christ. And what I mean by that, uh, he never engaged in endless conversations about subjective interpretations of the Bible uh, on these matters. Uh, he declared what the Scripture was, said what the scripture, objective teaching of Scripture was. He didn't uh, allow people to have all these different subjective opinions that the Bible means this, the Bible means that. The Bible only has one correct interpretation. And I think we must insist on that. That is only one correct interpretation of the Bible. But how do you know that you have the correct interpretation and that I don't? Well, it depends on the principle you apply. For example, we talk about, when you talk about hermeneutics, there are principles that apply to biblical interpretation. For example, if unless there's some kind of a, um, a literary device that is used, unless when you read the passage it doesn't make literal sense, uh, it has to do with your system of interpretation. But you, I mean, clearly, uh, "Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart" only has one interpretation. See, uh, "Blessed the poor in spirit" only has one interpretation. The point is to find out what the writer of the Bible meant at the time he wrote, not what the modern people interpret that to mean. So we've got to do the hard work of investigating historically the book. Uh, we've got to go back to the etymology of the word, how it was used there, and then in, in, in the portion it's called the grammatical historical approach to interpretation of the Bible. So the Bible doesn't mean what people say it means today. The Bible means what Paul wrote when Paul wrote it. And that's where we've got to get back to biblical meaning. Other than that, we all end up in subjective interpretations where the Bible could mean anything and then we in a total state of confusion. Uh, the other thing is I would like to say is that uh, when it comes to Christ, he did not agree to disagree on fundamental doctrines. He was a champion of truth. Right, uh, things like even on divorce, uh, things on the resurrection, uh, he didn't in any way say, well, "Okay, you can agree with that, and I can do, but let's all get together." Never said that. His position was very, very clear: God is not the God of the dead; He's the God of the living. So uh, clearly, 
the idea of agreeing to disagree on fundamental doctrines uh, would never be part of his thinking. He is one that championed truth. Uh, and he didn't also give equal time to every spurious teacher that came along in order for them to establish common ground. In other words, he did not facilitate false teaching and false traditions. Read the Gospels, and you will find that he said to them, by your traditions, you've violated the law, the law of God, and you've made your traditions higher than the law of God. So the idea of tolerating uh, false teaching, he never did that. So I think that that's one of the things that we need to approach. Um, the other thing is that we need to learn from him that in spite of uh, this fact, Jesus ministered to all kinds of people it didn't matter what their social status was or their economic standing or their racial identity. He ministered to all people, and we must learn to minister to all people, even those who are now imposing this new rule of regulation about tolerance upon us. So I think the Christian uh, needs uh, to respond um, how Christ follows his pattern, and I also think that we need to be as intolerant as he was. He did not tolerate hypocrisy, he did not uh, tolerate falsehood. He did not intolerate ambiguous uh, moral standards. Uh, he appealed to a higher standard even than the law. You read the Beatitudes. People say sometimes, and they make a ludicrous statement, that if we all live by the Beatitudes, we'll be fine and dandy. But anyone that goes to the Beatitudes would understand that the Beatitudes have a higher standard than the law. Uh, he said, the law said you should not kill. But I say unto you, you should not be angry with your brother without cause. The law said you should not commit adultery. But I say, if you look on a woman and lust after her, you committed adultery. So we got to understand that he established a higher standard. So I, I think that the Christian need to hold his ground, um, need to expose this new tolerance for what it is, um, totally absurd. And I do feel that in the, in the process, it must learn that it does not, uh, have to tolerate every opinion that comes along. You don't have to have common ground. That there are absolutes, that there are universals that apply to any and everybody, uh, and that the idea that all beliefs are the same and all doctrines are the same and all are equal is a completely spurious thing, and we must hold to the biblical teaching on this whole matter. And we must be willing to pay the price, by the way, for going against the tide of our times, even if it costs us uh, at the legal um, in courts because I do feel that over time we will face litigation as Christians holding to biblical positions because it is viewed as discriminatory and intolerant uh, I do feel that those days are coming but we must prepare ourselves for them Pastor we have a WhatsApp question or message from the UK that just came in it says good night just tuned in and I'm enjoying the topic I'm a disciplinarian. I believe the punishment should fit the crime. We must be firm and still loving. Children must learn to respect their parents, but not be afraid of them. Just like our Father God, we should not be partial with our children. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I said total, total sentiments. Um, by the way, I, I know that you, you said you're living in England. And I'm not too sure if you can still practice corporal punishment in England. I know in parts of Europe, 
is forbidden. Uh, but I do believe that the Bible, uh, not only we should not only counsel our kids and talk to them, that we should love them, but I believe we should lick them as well. And I find that if you go to the book of Proverbs, uh, now remember that God has given us the manual, and he knows human character better than we do. And he made it very clear that capital punishment is right and proper on certain occasions, and it's the only means of driving foolishness away from a child. So I do believe in talking to a child, talking to a child, but I also believe that capital punishment, capital punishment, uh, corporal punishment, corporal punishment, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. For it, corporal punishment Amazing is how also, long. yeah, I'm sorry about that, we got <laughs> off on capital punishment, corporal punishment is a legitimate form of discipline, and I think that even within our schools, um, I do feel that there are times and occasions when corporal punishment is, is proper. But we're living in an age now where that is going to be challenged, and the time may very well come that parents on the uh, might be threatened with lawsuits and jail time if they um, employ uh, corporal punishment. So I am in full harmony with what you're saying, uh, but I know that living in certain parts of the world, uh, you're form of discipline might be curtailed. And I, I feel I don't know of any government, any part on planet Earth where I was living that could tell me that I can't inflict corporal punishment on my child. I don't think such a government exists. And if they did exist, I would be willing to pay the price of doing what I believe is biblically correct and what God has authorized. A WhatsApp question that just came in from me, Antigua. When believers follow sound doctrine of Scripture... Wouldn't we know how to avoid contemporary contrary beliefs? That is ideal. Uh, but the problem that the, we need to face is that not much doctrine is being taught in churches today. Uh, most churches gravitate towards emotionalism, and a lot of churches, uh, the pulpit is no longer an expository pulpit. Uh, the pulpit is positive thinking. Uh, the, pul- the pulpit is how much laughter I can get from the congregation. Uh, the exposition of the Word and uh, going through the, a book of the Bible and teaching biblical doctrine, that's not in vogue today. Consequently, uh, the problems we have in the, in the modern church. Um, so I do agree with you that if we were to teach correct doctrine and we were having people who were actually studying the biblical doctrine and Christians who were reading good, solid biblical books, we would be able to avoid a lot of what is happening. But the problem is more complex than that. And what I mean by that is that for some reason, the church wants to ingratiate itself into the favor of the world. And there are times when the church has feel threatened. And the church don't want to be called obscurantist or discriminatory. The church wants to be accepted. And as a result of that, uh, they've made the fatal error of accommodating a lot of beliefs that ought not to have entered the church. And this has created a great problem for the church. And now you've got all kinds of mixed ideas within the church. And any person who now calls back the church to solid biblical doctrine and teaching uh, will face not only criticism from the layman, but a lot of pastors uh, will now passionately oppose any call to return to biblical truth and dogmatism. Uh, They feel that uh, we are now living in a laissez-faire kind of society and that uh, we need to be more tolerant because, again, as I said, this is infiltrating the church and affecting our capacity to emphasize uh, doctrine. Some people find doctrine very boring. Uh, they want something scintillating, something exciting. They're not so much concerned about truth. 
as they are about pleasure and about entertainment. Pastor, what do you feel is behind this whole push to redefine tolerance and to uh, change the idea of tolerance? Well, there's no doubt that there are forces that are beyond human forces ultimately pushing this new agenda. And I personally believe that the mastermind uh, behind all of this is none other than the infernal majesty, none other than Satan himself. There's no doubt in my mind that this whole charade of of, of tolerance that is so absurd it doesn't make any sense, that there's a great orchestrator behind all of it and that uh, Satan certainly is involved in this whole matter. Remember that he is the person that begins to question God's truth, God's revelation. Uh, Remember also that that question is supposed to create doubt in people's mind. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. This is strategy. You question, then you create doubt. And then ultimately that leads to contradicting what God says in his word. Uh, God Did God say this question and then created doubt and then he said, uh, you shall not surely die. And then, of course, the whole thing here is to corrupt uh, biblical truth. Uh, and that's where a lot of these things begin to happen. But it's always start with questioning, doubt, denial, contradicting scripture, creating confusion, and ultimately moving away people away from the truth. So I think the mastermind behind all of this is infernal majesty, his infernal majesty who is orchestrating a world in which uh, truth will no longer be held in regard. And uh, the idea that all ideas are of equal merit and the idea that uh, there's no universals to be applied to any and everybody and that there's no exclusivity in the area of religion and truth so that the whole purpose here is to manacle and harness and box in Christianity uh, because we make exclusive claims about Christ, about salvation, about God, about the Bible, uh, and about morality. And a world that is no longer embracing God and embracing any concept of um, absolutes find Christianity very offensive. And I think that there is this great mastermind who's orchestrating this for the whole purpose of shutting down the voice of the Christian and in some sense pushing uh, Christianity into a, a private corner that it has no voice in the public forum. I think that's exactly what's happening and I think there's a, more than just a human being behind it. I think there's a mastermind behind it. I, From reading articles and reading books... By the way, if you are looking for a good book on the topic of tolerance, uh, we mentioned it last week, but let me mention it again. There's a book by D.A. Carson, and the name of the book is The Intolerance of Tolerance. A very good book. If you like a book that makes you think and you really have to contemplate what is being said, I would strongly recommend that you get it. But, Pastor, it seems like Christianity is being targeted more by this concept of tolerance than other, maybe Muslims or other worldviews. Would you agree with that statement? I think that's a fair sentiment. And part of the reason for that, by the way, is because uh, the freedom of the press in the West 
where Christianity has been dominant for so, so, so many centuries, that type of freedom doesn't exist in other parts of the world. So they are exercising the freedom which is founded on Christian principles now to shut down Christians from being able to voice their own opinions and, and hold to their exclusive beliefs. And I think there's a disproportionate um, targeting of, of Christianity uh, and I think it's really, really directed towards them. For example, uh, in Australia, in Canada and the UK, uh, there has been legislation that has been passed that has brought pastors before the courts because uh, pastors discussed and preached on Islam and uh, they felt that it was judged that they had vilified Islam. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's very, very, very strange that that would happen. Uh, so it seems to me clearly that a lot of things that are happening in connection with this new tolerance is affecting uh, Christians in many, many ways. Uh, let me use some other examples. Um, you take the Catholic Adoption Service. The Catholic Adoption Service refused to put children in same-sex couples' homes. As a result of that, the government uh, forced them to withdraw offering that kind of a service. Uh, again, you take the, the churches in Canada that have lost their tax exemption uh, has been withdrawn because they do not go with the social agenda and they criticize lesbians and criticize uh, homosexuality. In some European countries, uh, a lawsuit has been brought against those who preach against sodomy. What uh, is even more surprising uh, in England, for example, a Catholic school was forbidden to fire an openly gay headmaster. Now imagine that, Catholic school, but they can't fire. I, I'm also told that in the UK, in the parochial schools, the Anglican schools, um, are forbidden to teach that homosexuality is sin. I mean, all of this clearly is targeted against uh, the values of Christianity. In June 29, 2004, I'm told that Pastor A. Green was sentenced to one month in jail for showing disrespect against homosexuals in his sermon. And this happened in Sweden. Uh, it was said that he was discriminating against a person's sexual orientation. A photographer, uh, Elaine, in New Mexico, who refused to photograph uh, a gay couple's commitment in marriage, uh, was sued and was asked to pay even the, the complainant's um, legal fees you think of all of these things that are happening. In Canada, in Alberta, a Human Rights Commission forbade a Christian pastor uh, from making disparaging remarks on, about homosexuality, even repeating biblical words that would condemn this. When you look at that whole cadre of examples, uh, the, the, the clear indication is that they're trying to muzzle Christianity. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. And I think that disproportionately, this is going to affect uh, Christians and their capacity to function. But it's not just Christians, by the way. Take what they did with the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts refused to allow homosexuals and atheists to be leaders, and they became blacklisted. And they lost the right to use public parks and places in America because of the pressure that these people brought against the Boy Scout Association. I mean, there is clearly an anti-God, anti-Christian sentiment that is abroad 
and it's disproportionately affecting uh, Christianity. And this new concept of tolerance is one of those major planks that is against the Christian faith. Here's an example that I came across this week that really surprised me. In 2006, the BBC reported that a 75-year-old man living in England was waiting for hip replacement, and he was on the waiting list for the surgery. During the time he was on the waiting list, he began mailing the staff at the hospital pictures of aborted babies. The chief executor of the hospital uh, proceeded to cancel his surgery, and beyond that, the chief magistrates at the court sentenced this 75-year-old crippled man to 28 days in jail for sending in for sending offensive literature to the hospital staff. Apparently, aborting babies is legal, and one must tolerate the abortionist, writes D.A. Carson. Depicting abortion, however, is a crime. It's okay to do to perform an abortion, but depicting an abortion is a crime and will result in jail time. It just seems so backwards and frustrating. And, and you know, if we would know the truth, I mean, we're just taking tidbits here and there, but it's far worse than that. Uh, and I, I really think that in the future, uh, for us here in the Caribbean, I really think that there are going to be a lot of legal... We can, a lot of legal, we can put a lot of legal jeopardy over different things that churches, churches hold to. For example, our church, as you know, Nathan, we will never tolerate homosexuality and lesbianism. We will never perform same-sex marriage. Uh, that will never happen in, in, in a Baptist church. We will always preach what God's Word tells us to preach. And when it comes to dealing with a homosexual or passionate deal with lesbians or whatever, we'll preach it. We're not going to uh, be muzzled in not preaching the word. And I think that that's going to have some serious consequences in the future. Uh, I can see it happening very, very easily, and I think it's going to happen. Uh, how, lo- how long that he that restrains will restrain, I don't know. But uh, I think that they have some really tough days ahead of us for the church. Now, I don't want to end on an overly discouraging note. There is hope in the Christian life. And how how should we move forward as Christians? Should we just stick our head in the sand and say, the battle has been lost. Uh, the world has won. Uh, tolerance has been redefined, and we just will have to be tolerant. I can't speak for others. I can only speak for myself. I think one of the great tragedies of the church is that we've lost the capacity for righteous indignation and anger. I think that we have really, really um, kowtowed to the culture, and I don't feel that the, we've taken a, a militant opposition as we should. What about the church militant? And what about the 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 the, the concept of martyrdom? Uh, it is said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why are we not prepared to take a f- strong fundamental stand? And however, whatever the consequences, um, I think we need a new militancy uh, in the church, and I think we need a new calling back the church to fundamental core doctrines, holding to those beliefs. But above all, I also think we need a a courage that is not intimidated by the epithets that are thrown at the church because it takes a biblical position. And one of the worst epithets that can be thrown at the Christian today is that you're intolerant or you're discriminatory. Uh, Let's take the Bible for what it is, hold to the Bible, preach the Bible, and take a stand on Scripture, and at the same time be prepared to take whatever consequences follow. 
as a Christian, should we ever discriminate? We discriminate every day. How so? For example, is it would uh, would you consider putting an imbecile as the head of a of a government? No. No. Would you consider putting a homosexual as the head of a primary school? No. No. My point is this: that we make decisions every day. Uh, we discriminate as to whether we take one one plane or another. Are we going to take Liat? Are we going to take American Airlines? That's discrimination, right? Uh, am I going to buy Colgate? Or am I going to buy um, whatever else is out there? You, you'd be always discriminating. Am I going to buy Carnation milk? Or am I going to buy um, Cardinal? That's discrimination. If you make discrimination is making a choice between two things. What you think is best for you. So I don't think you can live life without discriminating. You discriminate what school you send your child to. Uh, do I want to go to the grammar school? Do I want to go to artist comprehensive? That's a knack of discrimination. It's just that how people tarnish the word. It's not a bad word. It's just how it is used. Now, of course, there's some they're bad forms of, of uh, discrimination. No question about that. The discrimination on the, on, the, on the basis of a person's color. Clearly, that is wrong, right? Um, uh, depending on a, a situation, uh, d- depending on a person's ethnicity as well, discriminating, that kind, those things are wrong. But there's a good form of discrimination. There's a bad form of discrimination. We just need to make a distinction between the two. But the word in itself is a neutral word. It's just how it is used. Now, what should be my basis, though, for knowing when it's good to discriminate and when it's wrong to discriminate? Be- I have a simple answer for that, brother. It's what the book says. Let the Bible be your guide as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. If God says that sex before marriage is wrong, sex before marriage is wrong. If God said adultery is wrong, it is wrong. If God says capital punishment is right, it is right. If God says marriage is to be permanent, it is to be permanent. Let the Word of God be the guide in establishing the moral parameters by which we live. And we as Christians have got to get back to the book and understand that this is a sacred trust has been given to us and, and and God is the designer and he has given us a manual to make life work. We need to get back to scripture and the principle of scripture and the morality of scripture. You really think that the Bible has the answers for t- today's problems in the year 2019, Pastor? If the Bible doesn't have there's no solution to the human dilemma. I am suggesting to you that there's not a problem that humankind faces today. That is not some biblical principle that will guide that uh, guide us in a, in, a, in a way that honors God and helps people and is productive to society and helpful to society. In closing, Pastor, can you remind us what is true salvation? How do how does one become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, be headed to heaven? Well, t- to become a, a true believer and a true Christian, uh, it, all, it all starts with the fact that there has to be some level of knowledge, some some kind of biblical truth. Uh, salvation is dependent on God's Word and the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is the sword the Holy Spirit uses. So if it comes to salvation, you have to be exposed to biblical truth. You have to be exposed to what the Bible teaches about human sin, you have understanding the need of forgiveness, and I would suggest to you that one of the key things here, there has to be some level of conviction that you're guilty before God, you need pardon, you need forgiveness, and when you come to that point of uh, of, of, of conviction that you need forgiveness and pardon, and then you come to the point where you turn and uh, you, you're almost a hopeless state that you can't save yourself. 
and then you're pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ as the one who paid for your sins, who can pardon you, and then you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So to put it and summarize it, you must have repentance of your sins, and you must have faith in Jesus Christ. That's a simple combination of how a person becomes a Christian, becomes converted, putting the faith and trust in Christ. But there must be a willingness to repent and turn away from sin. If a person is not willing to turn away from sin, we can't go any further to talk about salvation. There's no salvation without repentance, and there's no salvation without faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible teach as far as the permanency of being a Christian? Once I have become a Christian, is that something that lasts for all eternity, or can I lose my salvation based on what I do? There's one simple answer, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall perish, no, never perish. It's eternal. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the program tonight. The name of the program is That's Truth. Make sure that you join us next week. We're going to be covering another very practical topic that affects our everyday life, and that is the topic of the uniqueness of Christ and refreshing us. What does the Bible teach us about Christ? Why is he unique? Why is he the King of kings and Lord of lords? And make sure that you join us again next Tuesday evening. Encourage others to tune in. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.